Welcome everyone. This is Grace Asagra of Quantum Nurse Podcast and welcome to Freedom International live stream. First, let me just give thanks to those who take time to really be with us during the live stream and make some comments and then those who couldn't be with us in the, during the live stream and thank you for you know, uh, viewing it, listening to it after and making more comments because that kind of helps us. It inspires us that you have some, you, you share your thoughts just as we share our thoughts, okay? And well, with me, um, I'm always excited to have also co-host Roy Colan from Awakening Podcast and Hartmut Schumacher from Go Your Own Path. And we really are excited, super excited when we even have especially important, that's for me important and significant and an expert on the field or on the field of what we're going to talk about. And that is Alex Craner. And Alex Craner is not, uh, not like a, a stranger to us. And at some point, I'll find time to meet him, you know, if he could travel to Ireland, if he tells me there's an event somewhere, maybe I'll meet him there. Okay, Alex, so mm -hmm. <laughs> you just say the word and I'll try very hard. That would, be, that would yeah. be with great pleasure, Grace. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And so um, in addition to what Alex will have to say about himself, I want to start with uh, Alex, Alex books. And that's one is the Alex Trainer's Trend Following Bible in 2021. And you could get that from his website or and from his Substack also, because he puts the link in his Substack. So do that. And if you have any question about that, please feel free to email him. And another one is he wrote that book, um, Mastering Uncertainty in Commodities Trading in 2016, which was rated number one book on commodities for investors and traders. And more than ever, this is also the time when we need this kind of brain, this kind of person, because he's genuine, okay? He doesn't just, you know, in fact, he's very shy to promote himself. So I'm making sure that with all your attention now, you get it, you remember it. And of course, the double band, twice band, sorry for the misspelling there, but it's the grand deception, the truth about Bill Browder, Magnitsky Act and anti-Russia sanctions, which was um, published in 2017. So as a financial analyst and is also with a lot of um, um, wisdom in terms of historical events, I would like to welcome Alex again. Alex, as, as I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And when it's time for me to reach out to you, you're always there and say, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a pleasure to join you. Um, and uh, thank you for having me, uh, Grace and Hartmut and Roy. Uh, it, it, we always have a lot to talk about, you know, so there's never a shortage of things to discuss. I would actually look forward to one day when we don't really have very much to talk about. <laughs> then, <laughs> so I guess that in our lifetime, that may not happen. Yeah, it's not looking good. It's not looking good. <laughs> well, uh, 
and uh, I, what I prepared for Alex and for all of us to, as a conversation is I prepared a video clip that just recently happened and this clip also in um, Alex, also, of course, he is well versed with this video. And at the same time, I have some images that I generated from Alex Substack because why do I do that recently? Because in, in images, there's some energy there that resonates to us that will help us encrypt and increase our understanding. And the evil cabal has been using a lot of the images, videos, and they were intentionally right, disrupting all our wisdom. So now let us intentionally like claim that wisdom again. So if that's okay, um, think, bear with us if there's some tech issue, but let me start first with this quote that Alex plays and this image. And Alex, please let me hear your response or re reaction when you see this and why you chose this. And I also invite Hartmut who, uh, and, and uh, Hartmut and Roy, if they have any thoughts to what I share, please feel free, okay? So, uh, Grace, this is one of the very important quotes for us to always keep in mind because uh, the world is almost perpetually at war and they are, you know, the empire, the United States and primarily United States and United Kingdom uh, seem unstoppable in their quest for more wars. They're escalating it. They're escalating wars and conflicts where it is clear to everybody that they have no chance of prevailing. They have no chance of achieving any kind of a military victory. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, either these people are completely mad or there's a different agenda. And uh, they're not completely mad. Uh, there is a different agenda and the agenda is oppression at home. So uh, they start wars to generate emergencies, national emergencies, to put everybody in a state of uh, psychosis uh, in order to be able to crack down at home, to pretty much cancel democracy, to um, cancel opposition, dissidents, uh, freedom of speech, to introduce uh, um, widespread censorship. And so this is where James Madison's quote is very relevant because people back then, they already had a conflict with the British Empire. It's the same conflict. We still have the conflict with the undead British Empire. And so it was understood that fighting foreign enemies is a way to bring tyranny and oppression to people who desire freedom. And... Uh, this is, this is something that is still going on today. And we see today that um, oppression and tyranny in the West are, are growing, they're metastasizing. And also, you know, we have a multiplication of foreign enemies, you know, when it's not, uh, you know, extreme Islam or Saddam Hussein or Manuel Noriega or... Bashar al-Assad, it has to be Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping and the mullahs in Iran and the Palestinians and the Houthis. So there's always this um, constant uh, multipli multiplication of enemies. And to our audio listeners, it, uh, 
um, quote itself says, if tyranny and oppression come to this land, it will be in the guise of fighting a foreign enemy by James Madison. My thought on this is that it's bad enough that we have our own oppression. We have sometimes we create our own self-tyranny in our own selves, you know? Yes, we grow up and evolve ourselves. And yet when it is truly happening in a massive and collective level, it's super crazy and we're confused with that. And this picture is like, where'd you get this picture? It's like the devastation of which war was this? I think, Grace, that this is an AI-generated image. It's not a. It's not from any specific war, but I used it in one of my blog articles just as a as an image of a future we create if we acquiesce to these perpetual wars, because eventually they come home, and we shouldn't feel complacent because in Europe. We already had two devastating wars last century. Even just, you know, 20, 20 some years, one from the other, 24 years, one from the other. So, you know, the forces that generate these wars, they're not, they haven't disappeared. They're still there. We are still vulnerable. We must be vigilant and we must um demand peace we must demand peace otherwise this is you know this image which shows uh, just ruins from devastating place it could be anywhere it could be fallujah it could be gaza it could be a european city after world war ii or a japanese city um it shows just gray ruins of a, of a former city. And this is what we could create one more time if we do not um, actively demand and defend peace. In my opinion, it's, um, let's say it this way, you cannot create uh, peace with weapons, never. And you said it right, Alex, the, um, Every war is for the people who are um, in um, who are in control. The best opportunity to to change their country within. For example, we see it in Germany. Yeah? The um, the population gets angry with the with the parliament and with the government, and uh, the right wing parties they increase their votes. They, it's uh, and the government gets very anxious. And for example, the president said in a speech, everyone who is now voting right is a, is a rat officially as a president of a country. And the situation is the only way they can prevent this is that they can establish a, a, a war with Russia before the next election. And this is what they are preparing. Because yes. everywhere in whole Europe, the, the military drills are increasing. They are increasing the drill with 90,000 soldiers right now in a couple of months, in two months. The, uh, in Germany, they show, the youth shall go to the, to the army again. In UK, the, people shall go, the youth shall go to the army again. So they are increasing the speed by creating a war 
with another country in order to hold the control what we have already. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And who's this fellow? I, I have to laugh, Grace. This is right and honorable Grant Shapps, uh, British uh, Member of Parliament and the Minister of Defense, quote unquote defense. Uh, he should be called Minister of War. So basically, he and many other European leaders came out over the last few weeks starting to bang the drums of war. And on this particular occasion, which was um, just about two weeks ago, he gave a speech. Well, he posted a, a short video on Twitter, on X, in which he essentially said that Britain is going to have to have conscription because the British military is small. Well, he didn't say all that, but British military is small. And, uh, you know, they have to go to war against Russia. So they need, they need conscription. And British people are go well, you know, they, their plan is to start recruiting uh, ordinary Britons into the army to go and fight another world war on the European continent against Russia. These people are completely mad. Of course, they cannot win the war against Russia. They spent eight plus years. So from 2014, but even before that, even before that, uh, the United States and NATO and the CIA and MI6 were already building up Ukraine for the war against Russia. These preparations were very, very extensive. Um, and they built the biggest army in continental Europe. I think that only Turkey had a bigger army than Ukraine. And they equipped that army extremely well. And so the biggest proxy army that they had has been basically destroyed to almost nothing. And so now, you know, the countries, countries like Sweden and Britain and Germany and the Baltic states and Poland, none of whom have a, an army that is even remotely as powerful as U Ukraine's military was. Now they want to all want to go to war. And again, you know, this is so insane that I think the only explanation is against that James Madison quote, that if tyranny and oppression come to our lands, it will be in the guise of fighting a foreign enemy. What's happening? What is happening is that we have a social revolt uh, escalating among the people, you know, because of the energy crisis, because of the attack on the farmers, because of the aggressive uh, indoctrination of children in our schools, uh, you know, bringing this whole LGBT propaganda. Um, overt embracing of Satanism. Um, they're and 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 the nonstop pandemic games, which they're trying to still foist on us. You know the you know disease X or Marburg or whatever they they're coming up with. And so people have had enough. People have had enough, and so we see 
protests growing all over Europe, in, in Germany and in France, in Poland, Romania, Hungary. Um, no, sorry, not Hungary. Romania, Bulgaria, um, Croatia, France. And these, these protests, as they grow, they jeopardize the standing order. They, they jeopardize the establishment. And so what do you do? You, um, you, you scream barbarians at the gate, enemies at the gate. The Russians are coming to get us. And so the effect that you hope to achieve is to get all the military age men, able-bodied men, to join the army or to conscript them forcefully and to send them to the, to the front where they're going to get slaughtered in very large numbers. So you're, you're going to diffuse the social um, tensions that threaten, that, that threaten your position of power. And this has, been, this has been going on through history at least since the Roman times. This is what the Roman Empire did because the uh, Roman Empire was also an oligarchic society. Uh, you know, they taught us in school that Roman Senate and, 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 the, and the ruling patricians were very devout Democrats. They, they cherished the democracy and democratic institutions, but it was, it was a, a very brutal oligarchy, in fact. And so every so many years, um, the, con the unbearable conditions of life in Rome would result in some kind of a social uprising or a revolt or a revolution or, you know, slave uprising. And uh, sometimes these uprisings would be so large that even the Roman army had very great difficulty controlling them. And so, you know, the oligarchy invented barbarians at the gate, the roost that would get all the able-bodied patriotic men who thought like, oh my gosh, you know, the barbarians are going to be here and they're going to uh, rape my, our wives and kill our children and destroy our villages and, and enslave us all. So, you know, the honorable thing to do would be to join the army and go destroy these barbarians. And so here we are again, you know, now we have the Russians who are going to, you know, rape our wives and um, kill our children and destroy our towns and villages and uh, not to mention our liberal democracies. And so we have to go and kill the Russians, right? Otherwise, we're all in danger. So again, always, always the same thing. And this is why I've, I've posted a few articles on, in this sense, because I think that we have to be very careful not to fall for these lies, because they are lies. Um, you know, Vladimir Putin has been in power for 24 years now, almost 23, 23 years. And uh, during these whole 23 years, he never showed any inclination to go conquering foreign territories. And even when he launched a special military operation against Ukraine, he did it with a very specific objective in mind, and that was to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO and to make Ukraine a neutral country. That was his demand. Literally within days from starting the special military operation in February uh, 22, they immediately started discussing with the with their Ukrainian counterparts. 
And at that point, they practically had a peace treaty ready for signature. Everything was agreed except for the status of Crimea, which, you know, could have remained open. There was no need to, you know, um, maximize the war escalation. And um, at that point, the Russians had no territorial demands. They didn't, they weren't asking for Donbass. They wanted, they were prepared to let Donbass remain as part of Ukraine with a special status and, and a, a certain autonomy as, as defined per Minsk II agreements, right? The accords. But it was the West that wanted the war. So it was it was Boris Johnson who went to Kiev urgently to tell Zelensky, do not sign any kind of a peace treaty. We're behind you. We'll defeat Russia. Go fight the war. And so that's what they did. Um, you know, always the same rules, always the same uh, agenda, always the same playbook. I appreciate very much what you say. Yeah, that's it is like that. It's the the war was ended uh, closely after four weeks. And now yep. they have poisoned the land with depleted uranium. Yes. Yes. It's un it's insane. It's unbelievable. And um, the problem is the, the soldiers, the West, the Western soldiers, they don't know what they are, what they are going to fight because Russia hasn't any war since 1989. And this was the end of the Afghanistan war. And since that day, they have no fight and they have a lot of, they have a huge, a huge military equipment, a huge military army. And this military army is drilled for big war. And yes. since 2001, the whole NATO has changed its strategy in Uh, in in fighting against terrorism. So you have only teams of, let's say, seven people, or at least 20, who have to go in special operation. So the whole strategy of the NATO is not prepared to go on war with Russia. And they will lose completely. Um, yes, Hartmut, uh, you're absolutely right. However, I, I'd like to correct you. It's Uh, after since Afghanistan, Russia has been engaged in uh, military operations in uh, Chechnya and Dagestan. Yes. yes. Uh, then uh, in uh, Georgia in 2006. Yes. yes. Uh, and then uh, Syria in 2015. From from 2015. But all of these wars, all of these wars, have been kind of uh, set up and provoked. And imposed on Russia by 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 Western powers, which are absolutely obsessed with trying to draw Russia into a quagmire like Afghanistan, so that it might they might be able to weaken Russia and yes. then to regime change it, and then to bring some uh, leader into into the Kremlin, like President Yeltsin in the 1990s, because when Yeltsin was in power, then the seven the seven oligarchs, the, the seven bankers ran the country and uh, Boris Yeltsin was ruling uh, Russia like Joe Biden is ruling the United States today. He barely knows where he is and yes. Yeltsin barely knew when, where he was. And so the oligarchs 
uh, who are all, all of them, were trustees for Western financial interests, for, uh, you know, Rockefellers and Soros's and Rothschilds of this world. And they absolutely um, managed the political life of, of the nations. They, they named uh, officials. They, na- they, they nominated uh, government ministers. They told government ministers what to do. They removed government ministers if they, they didn't obey them. And all of this, all of this stopped uh, on 31 December 1999 when Yeltsin finally nominated Vladimir Putin and he immediately put the oligarchs on notice saying that, okay, the old ways are over. Uh, you're no, lo- no longer running the place. Keep your businesses, pay your taxes, pay your people well, but stay out of politics. And so that was the big change. And then, you know, I, I, I've noticed that from the point of view of Russian leadership, they are, they are going at great lengths to make sure that all of their military engagements are, uh, are, are legal from the standpoint of international law. So, you know, when, when they went to Syria, they had United uh, UN, United Nations com- com- UN approval? Yeah. I, I'm I'm blanking out on the on the UN Security Council, UN UNSC, yeah, UN Security Council approval. And they also had an official invitation from the legitimate president of the um, of Syria. So you know, the fact that they are in Syria isn't illegal because it's it's backed up by international law, unlike the United States, which bombed Yemen illegally, which occupies parts of Syria illegally. They don't care. They think like we are we are the most powerful nation on earth, so we don't have to uh, abide by the law, which is why they invented the whole rules-based order, because they know themselves that they are so regularly in breach of international laws that they just quietly dropped that and started talking about international rules-based order. But I think that lately they're not even talking about the rules-based order so much anymore, last couple of weeks, because even even that is starting to sound ridiculous to anybody who's paying attention because, you know, it's there's one rule for Israel with the Palestinians, there's a different rule for Russians with the Ukrainians, and there's a third set of rules for Iranians with the Houthis, you know, who who is allowed to support whom, in what way. It's all over the place. So now they're not even talking about anything at all. They're just, they're just, trying, to, um, they're just trying to provoke a, a global conflict where they think that if everybody goes to war against everybody else, maybe I'll be able to squeeze out the back door intact and then maybe yes, rule over the ashes when everything is done. They think that, for example, in Ukraine, they, they are the winner. From the money, with respect to the money, they are the way. Yes, yes, yeah. that's that. To me, that is insane. I don't even know. I mean, I, I know how they explain it to themselves, but it, it really, you really have to kind of believe in in certain fictitious account. For example, you know, one uh, one acquaintance of mine told me like. Oh yeah, no. Russia is definitely long-term. Russia is definitely going to lose in Ukraine 
because the West can outspend Russia 10 to 1 in military expenditures. And I thought, okay, uh, they can spend 10 to 1. So what are they going to do? Are they going to throw dollars at, at the Russians? And not only that, they have to spend 10 to 1 just to keep at the same level because, for example, you know, the, the thing that, that has proven to be extremely important are these uh, artillery shells that Russia uses 152 millimeter art artillery shells and the West, the NATO standard is 155 millimeter art artillery shells. So Russia is outproducing the West by orders of magnitude. And now West is invest the Western nations are investing heavily to try to keep up. But while the Russians are producing those artillery shells at I think between 600 and $800 a shell, their Western ones have come up to $8,000 a shell. So they have to spend 10 times just to do the same. Yeah. It, it, they're not gaining 10 times the advantage. And then when you look at all when you look at all the other weapon system, you see that um, in the West, production of advanced weaponry has primarily served the profit motive of the military industrial complex. You know, the the glossy presentations, uh, the impressive sounding uh, specifications. But actually, um, many many of the uh, of the of the web weapon systems that they've developed are pretty useless in in the field because they're difficult to use, difficult to maintain, uh, very fragile, um, and and Russians have been for decades developing systems that are robust that that can run in all conditions that can work in all conditions that are extremely yes. easy to use, easy to mount, to dismount, to move, and, and, and simple for, for ordinary soldiers to operate. So there's a, there's a terrible mismatch between Russian military power and the West, which is not a function of how much money you spend. It's a function of how effective the whole military machinery is. And it seems to me that Russia today is by far the most effective military machinery in the world. world. The interesting thing is, for example, the new submarine that they have special, they had special um, weapons for the sea, mm -hmm. and they can create tsunamis in specific directions. And <clears throat> the submarine disappeared, and then it came back home to Russia, and it was lighter, and no one knows where these bombs are. So, one click, and London is gone by water. Oh, I didn't know this. So you reckon you reckon that they they planted some kind of an explosive device somewhere where they can activate it and and cause a tsunami like this. I remember that the Russians were based off of Ireland not so long ago, about a yes, year ago. Yes, yes. So I know. perhaps, yeah, I wasn't aware of that either. But yeah, maybe it was that time. But that's so, going to have a very bad carbon foot footprint. That's not good. No, it's only a tsunami. <laughs> it's water. Oh, but, <laughs> no, but um, the situation, the problem is, um, let's say it this way, concerning Europe, I have to, I, I see it this way. Russia is not, how can I say, it doesn't matter whether they will win or not against Russia. They want to, they want to control Europe in a, and they yes. want to transform Europe in a communistic regime. Yes. And, and I have the feeling 
that the whole world knows it, the whole world has agreed on that, and they let it happen. This is, for example, the uh, that the United States has, um, yeah, they have stopped the LNG uh, uh, vessels to Germany. Yeah. So yes, uh, we don't need to say anything about this. It's obvious. So everything, it's like. It's like okay, we have we have a communist regime here on this planet. We have to give them a bone. What should, shall we give? Okay, take Europe. That's it. Yeah, and the rest, let us go. Well, uh, yes, I think I think, however, that there's a there's a slightly different. Um, I, I I interpret it in a different way. You know, it's not that somebody said take Europe. It seems to me that the that the oligarchy in power in Europe. And in, in, in the West in general, have realized that they are losing very badly to Russia in you know and the and the and the grand the the great the greatest price is Ukraine because it's the key to controlling the Eurasian landmass. And the Eurasian landmass is, is practically everything to them. Okay, this is the main obsession since the days of the British Empire, the main obsession is controlling the Eurasian landmass. And so uh, as, they, as, they, as they realize that they're probably going to lose Ukraine, I think that the only consolation price for them to stay in power, so not to be swept in, in, a, in, a, in, like, a, in like a revolution out of power and then you know, some kind of a different system evolves and takes place of the current system, uh, they need a war against the foreign enemy, Russia, China, Iran, whoever, you know, it doesn't matter. It just has to be a big war because they need to drain a lot of blood, you know, a lot of German, French, Polish, Austrian, Italian blood has to be drained so that the, the society is weak, so that it's easier to control. And then they would... Um, consolidate power by eliminating dissent and eliminating um, uh, opposition, political opposition, and introducing some kind of a military or quasi-military dictatorship. And then only with, with time, many years, they might be able to restart the military industries to uh, start building effective weapons because I hopefully they learn something from this debacle in Ukraine and start militarizing uh, Europe and the United States and Canada and Australia in the same way that they have militarized Germany in the 1930s and the same way that they have militarized Ukraine um, over the last 20 years or so and with the objective of trying again to win the hegemony over the Eurasian landmass and to control that hegemony so that they, they control all the trade and that they control all the financial flows and that they control uh, the collateral because, you know, collateral is how you float your financial system. You know, the whole financial system is based on uh, borrowed money, Okay. Well, in order for you to borrow money, you have to have collateral. The bank won't give you a loan unless you have collateral, something they can repossess if you fail to pay. So um, 
the collateral is is the foundation for the the whole financial system to come up on top and that financial system then you 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 milk it you extract it to build your your military empire and the, to keep the political system in under control and so forth so without that collateral everything implodes and most of the good collateral is in the on 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 Eurasian continent and in Africa and they're losing on both sides yeah we can see it for example in the Sahel zone Niger um what is else in the Sahel zone I, I I heard the three countries um they have they are now a military um they are now the military have military regime and they try to escape the power of the west it's very interesting the oh African, you're talking about africa yes they try to several countries try yes. to escape from from the from the iron hand of the west by the military uh, regimes which they yes it's it, in in fact it's i think it's most of western africa yes even the countries that you know even the ecowas countries that the west keeps under control they're keeping the regimes under control but the regimes themselves are very fragile you know uh, nigeria yes. senegal you know morocco they're all um, regimes that are loyal to western powers but so was burkina faso until the coup you know and so was niger until the coup so you know it wouldn't be impossible to see a coup in senegal in the near future where anti-french feeling is very very strong and also in nigeria and then the whole ecowas structure crumbles into nothing and you know there's even now ecowas is very ineffective as an enforcement because you know the french cannot police western africa so they thought they would outsource policing of western africa to ecowas countries ecowas countries basically is nigeria um you know and if nigeria is not willing to fight wars for western interests nobody else is either and nigeria has enough problems of their own that they do not dare because if 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 nigerian military led the ecowas forces to restore you know quote unquote democracy in in niger they probably would have triggered triggered a revolution and a regi regime change uh, and a coup at home so they didn't the french can't so it's a it's a it's a it's very much a losing game and united states is losing their hegemony in the middle east and they it's it's not even by a small margin it's they're they're getting they're getting pummeled absolutely interesting well, yeah. let me let me interject with that uh, alex because when your conversation between you and Hartmut, that kind of reminded me of the powerful implication and significance of the silk road project right because if they can continue to interrupt that duration stability then it will disrupt also the powerful project that will in fact bring harmony and economic financial stability the high potential for all these different countries the same thing that's happening in africa with that pan-african railroad uh, so it is just um so that's why sometimes people our audience have to understand why there's the focus on chaos in certain yes. strategic places because that's yes. all 
by planned. So anyway, so sure, um, share some thoughts. One one important uh, one thing for Germany. Germany, I said, I think it was uh, the Russian talked about this. I don't know anymore, but. Germany can become a very powerful nation in Europe again when they interact with China. And this is, and for this reason is, um, at the moment, the whole world is laughing about Germany, but the problem is Germany is very close to China. And, and yes. the, the implementation of the same structure will take place first in Germany. And from there, and then you have this, and then also the Silk Road makes very a lot of sense, in my opinion. Uh, no, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think that Germany is absolutely pivotal, which is why we are seeing uh, such absolutely dirty fight that the, the side that's loyal to the empire, I don't know what to call them, but they're basically behaving like Stasi. I, you know, I have I have contact with some people in Germany who are close to the IFD party. I just asked them, like, what is going on? And uh, a lot of what the media are reporting is outright false. Yes. Uh, they're, they're just flat out lying about what's going on. You know, like, for example, the, the incident with uh, Robert Habeck when he went to that <laughs> island yes. and then... Yeah. It's the way the media reported was absolutely false. Um, yeah. The, no, the, the, uh, for the for listeners, our um, our minister for economics, he made holiday on an island and wanted to come back with a ferry. And there stood, um, let's say, a handful of tractors and uh, farmers. And um, they they were described more or less nearly nearly more or less like terrorists and they yes um, and uh, the ferry had to escape the port because of the because of the um yeah, yeah. because otherwise they would have lynched him right yes. except <laughs> nobody did anything i had nobody did anything yet. i had a, a from from an eyewitness who was there he said that the the the, the farmers simply parked their tractors and turned on their lights towards the ferry Nobody attacked, nobody even yelled, nothing happened. But the media reported this as practically as it was the lynch mob. Robert Habeck, being the weaselly coward that he is, he didn't dare to come out. No. And then well, the situation is instead of coming out, he asked the he asked the ferry to take him back to the island. Ferry didn't escape a lynch mob. Habeck didn't dare face the farmers, so he so he returned to the island and then the media turned it into a completely different story. And then, you know, one day when they when they crack down, they're going to say like, well, you know, it's these, these people are extremely dangerous, ex uh, terrorists, extremists or lynch mobs. They have to be punished. And then, you know, you, they're going to be doing the most, uh, we had we had. Uh, so, for example, the LNG news of Germany uh, about Germany is very um, insane or let's say also dangerous. And we had also a very important uh, news, for example, in the last weeks, that Mercedes-Benz is going to sell all their retailer shops in Germany. So all of them. All of them. Germany, Mercedes is selling all one has the intention to sell all retailer shops in Germany. Retail retail shops in Germany, and this is a sign. So, no one has any 
you know, if, if Mercedes-Benz sets a retail shop, then the, the, all the other cars comes comes as well. Car factories. And this it's is un- the backbone of Germany. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. This is surreal. This is surreal. Yes. And this is and this and this shows how this how um I like to every time I like to quote Lord Ismay, who said the NATO is established in order to keep the USA in, the Soviet Union out, and the Germans under. Yes. It's the same. Every time yes. the same. So and this is and this is how they do it. They try to destroy Europe, and in that moment when the European Europe is destroyed, the UK can control Europe. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Maybe is... you speak, uh, Alex, more on that that section when you subtitle this as NATO is immobilizing, because I'm sure uh, I'm sure Roy has experiences right in Poland because it does affect Poland as well. Well, I've seen what you wrote about um, you know that like if you don't. When you're called up within six hours, you can get three years, which is insane. That kind of, I mean, yeah. I knew once Tusk came in that that was danger because, like, he's part of the, he, you know, he was leading the the EU previously. Yeah, Roy, uh, you, you you are in Poland, is that? Did I understand yeah. that correct? Oh, I yeah. didn't realize. I thought you were based in Ireland. No, I'm Irish, but I live in Poland. Yeah. I live in Poland. And so this law, that did this actually pass? Did, did this become a law actually? No, it was like I was reading it from, from your article. So, I mean, I, I'm going to keep an eye on it and just check with, okay. with locals okay. what's going on. But even the fact that it's kind of been brought about is frightening. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and uh, I think, you know, we have to be very careful because... We have to remember that Ukraine wasn't Ukraine as a nation was never hostile towards Russia. Even you know, even after the coup in 2014, during the first presidential election or parliamentary, I forget. Presidential, that's when Poroshenko uh, won. The the two extreme right parties, Swoboda and uh, the right sector, private sector, right? Um, they won together about 1.6% of the popular vote. So about 1.6% of Ukrainian people voted for the actual neo-Nazis. So they were not very popular at any point. And even in 2019, when, when uh, Zelensky ran for president, he won with 73 or 74% of the popular vote. And the reason why they swept him into power is because he was promising normalization of relations with Russia. And he was promising peace with Eastern Ukrainians and implementation of the Minsk protocols. So... It's very clear that this is what Ukrainian people wanted even as late as 2019. However, now we saw the nation almost completely destroyed 
and we see these neo-Nazi secret police, military police, scooping up people off the street to to throw them into the trenches on the on the on the eastern front and so this this to me is a is extremely worrisome because this is exactly what was happening in germany in 19, in the 1930s um the western cabal which is you know the corporate and banking interests who were funding the the nazis had a lot of trouble bringing hitler to power you know i think i think hitler at the most at the most ever uh, scored 37% in popular in 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 elections that's not a majority and that was even with heavy propaganda and heavy electioneering and uh, you know they brought mgm studios from hollywood to produce these very very slick promotional videos for the Nazi party. And so, you know, it took a lot to bring the Nazis to power. So German people were not um, overwhelmingly supportive of Nazis at any point. But, you know, we know what happened through World War II. And one thing that I noticed in all these, you know, the, the process of Nazification the way it starts is by plunging the nation into poverty, into misery. <clears throat> you you destroy the economy. You make sure that young men uh, have no future. They have no way to fulfill their aspirations, that they cannot afford to raise families, uh, get married, buy houses, uh, have secure jobs, careers, and so forth. And... And then you start funding these uh, political movements, these extreme extremist political movements, and you start giving them money. And then at the same time, you propagandize the the you know the the myth of the great nation, both Germany and Ukraine. You have this myth of the great nation, and then you create. You create the external enemy that is to blame for all the troubles at home. You know, there's corruption, the economy is destroyed, people have no future, everybody's poor, nothing functions correctly, uh, the country is in the hands of, of oligarchs, there's injustice perceived at practically every every point in the society. And so, you know, people obviously are on the verge of the revolt, and then you channel that revolt to the extreme right fanatical movements and you start giving them money and then the young men who are uh you know who are longing for meaning for who are longing for uh, cleaning up and and bringing their nation to some kind of a normalcy they start joining these movements not only they start to get money there and they now they finally feel like they're doing something with their lives and then you tell them your enemy your enemy the reason why our country is in the state that it is is the Russian Jewish mafia, okay? When it was Germany, it was the communist Jewish mafia or, or you know, combination of communists and, and the Jews. And so you create this, um, this enemy image and then people have something to fight for. 
And then you create things like uh, the brown shirts movement, which in 1930, in 1930, I think that it was, it was a couple of hundred people, a couple of hundred men. By 1933, when Hitler came to power, it was between one and two million. And, and now you have a huge problem because you have like a whole extremely aggressive extremist Nazi movement. They go around intimidating politicians, judges, police, um, uh, local councils, you name it. Any, any, anywhere that anything of importance is, is happening, you send these groups. And we saw in Ukraine what happened in Odessa on 2nd May 2014 when people who were opposed to the, to the regime in Kiev after the coup held a, a peaceful demonstration. They had some tables set out with some leaflets. Uh, and the regime in Kiev sent a, a group of thugs. And they ended up killing um, unofficially 116 people. Official, uh, sorry, officially, I think 114 or 116 people. And... Um, Unofficially, it was 200 or, or even more. And uh, the reason why I'm saying all this is because we now have the process of immiseration happening in general in the West, you know, in Western Europe. Uh, and we have it also in the United States. People are not doing well. The economy is not strong. Uh, the place is getting deindustrialized. Nothing works. Everything is corrupt. And now you see, um, you see again these beginnings of brown shirt movements in the United States, but also in Europe, in, in Poland, in Sweden, Finland, in uh, Germany. Um, a number of European countries. You see these torture. Sorry? In Italy as well. Very strong. In Italy as well. Um, I think in Austria. Maybe Slovakia, Czech Republic. I, 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 I've, I've done a search online and I saw photographs of similar marches from many countries. So, you know, obviously somebody's doing that because these people don't suddenly turn up with the flags and the, and the torches and the uniforms out of nowhere. Somebody gave them money for all this. So somebody's obviously doing this. They're, they're, they're planting these brown shirt movements and so my my fear is that just like the nazis were unpopular in ukraine they may be unpopular today in europe but fast forward a few years and maybe those same brown shirt movements are going to be scooping up our children on the streets to throw them into the trenches to fight the russians Okay, so this, I, this is why I think it is extremely important that we pay very close attention to what's going on and that we try to um, stop this from happening because it is happening. They are doing it. And they have a very long track record of doing it successfully. So we're, uh, you know, I, I, I see that as a very real source of danger for the West over the next uh, 10 years or so the generation 
after my generation, I mean, I'm early 70s that I was born, but in Ireland, they can't afford to buy houses. Most of them are actually living at home and they can't even rent like things that were like 800 euro when I was, you know, 20 years later, like it's like two and a half grand now. And plus you've got the energy bills have gone through the, the roof. Yeah. But also the financial sector, because they're actually interest rates. So most people, their amount that they're paying on their mortgage has doubled. So what you're saying is uh, like is total making total sense to why the whole lot has been orchestrated. But the problem is like, how do we stop all this? What what your what do you think is the, because like it's if you even look at say like you start reporting about the chemtrails, people attack you. You start re- reporting about five G. You can give as much information. You can even give Freedom <clears throat> of Information Act. Like this only happens when it starts building. Like like you've just mentioned. And we have to nip it in the bud because nobody, like even, I think when you had Russia and the Ukraine, I think it was the first time. I mean, I knew people from both sides. Nobody wanted this. Nobody hated each other. Like we're well, speaking, yeah, exactly. like the Irish hated the English because they were after coming in and destroying us. But we don't have that anymore. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, how do we stop this? Um, you know, the only way I know of is is uh, is by by pointing it out, by, by speaking out about this. You know, like when they, when they, when they try to orchestrate a false flag attack, if you if you front run them, if you if you if you bang the drums that hey they're trying to orchestrate a false flag attack, you can preempt them, because if 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 it's already been announced and it spreads through the public, by the time they orchestrate it, people say like oh so you yeah that wasn't a real attack it was. It was false flag attack because everybody saw you wanting to do that. But there may be more creative ways of doing it. I think that this uh, this would require co- collaboration, maybe of of uh, local politicians and local business leaders and maybe even local media. That this this danger be uh, pointed out to them. Nobody wants their children to. Uh, to have the future that Ukrainian young men had, you know, through the war. I think that if people understand that they're being uh, driven into the slaughterhouse, that they might push back. And then maybe, because how do you, how do you nip this in the bud, I think, is you have to find the, the sources of uh, funding. Who is paying for these people's uniforms and and the uh, placards and flags and torches and who's organizing their marches who's giving them permits to organize these marches who's paying for the uh for the um how do you call it their office spaces because you know if if the guys had to pay the office you know you can't even do anything without at least office space a telephone a computer and a coffee maker and internet access well, even that is going to cost a couple of hundred bucks a month at the very least. And if the guys have to pull that money out of their own pocket, believe me, there's not even going to be the beginning of a Nazi movement. Somebody's paying for this. So I think that it would be extremely important to find out who is paying for this. And it, it, it would be extremely important for people to understand that their children themselves might end up scooped up by these very same groups and throw, thrown into the meat grinder for somebody else's war. Exactly what's happening to the Ukrainian men today and exactly what's happened to the German men 
70, 80 years ago. And we know also that, you know, at the end of World War II, the Nazi machinery was was picking up old men and 16-year-old boys off the street, just like the Zelensky's government is doing today. So that's coming our way if we just, you know, sit and watch and acquiesce and think like, well, you know, the experts are taking care of us, so we don't have to do anything. Yeah, exactly. It is time to be brave. I think it is because it's our children's future, you know. I wouldn't want them to be dead face down in the mud somewhere in the, on the Eastern Front. And I think people, they should realize as well when there's a national emergency, just like, I mean, like Zelensky has stopped elections. So democracy goes out the door. And also like the likes of us, they can shut us down as well. Like, you know, the alternative media. Well, you know, the whole concept of democracy in the West has been one of the big lies <clears throat> that was sold to us. And I can I can give you a really, really quick explanation about what is the difference between the democracy that we have in the West and the autocracies that, you know, they have in Belarus and Russia and China and Iran and places like this. The difference is that um, in these autocracies, uh, the political leadership is above the oligarchy. So Vladimir Putin can line up his oligarchs, as he did, you know, as soon as he became president, he summoned uh, a group of oligarchs, group of Russian oligarchs, I think 15 or so of them, 15 or 20 of them, and he laid out the rules. He said, continue with your business, but pay your taxes, treat your employees well, pay them correctly, and stay out of politics. Those were the three conditions. This was uh, at some point in 2000, 2001. <clears throat> well, the Russia's richest oligarch, uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, well, he thought, what's this little anonymous apparatchik going to tell me the rules of the games? I'm the richest man in Russia. I own Yukos. I own the Manatech Bank. Uh, I'm going to run things around here. And so he defied Vladimir Putin for political power. And then the next thing in October 1993, sorry, in October 2003, uh, there was a very public arrest, you know, televised arrest of Mikhail Khodorkovsky. He was charged with uh, tax evasion and embezzlement, doesn't matter, but he was slammed into prison for, for, uh, for nine years. And so this was a very clear message to all the oligarchs. Uh, you may be wealthy, you may have these big businesses, but... You don't run the place, so behave yourself. Okay, so that can happen in Russia, that can happen in China, that can happen in Iran, Belarus, Cuba maybe, Venezuela maybe, I don't know. But it is inconceivable in our Western liberal democracies because in our liberal democracies, the oligarchy is above the political leadership. So we get democracy, we can, you know, vote political leadership out of office, but the oligarchy stays the same. So whoever comes into power answers to the oligarchy. Um, in the United States, the president cannot line up the Rockefellers and you know the, 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 the Rothschilds and the bankers and Warren Buffett will be Bill Gates. Never. It's inconceivable. In Sweden, 
the prime minister cannot line up the Wallenbergs and, and, and such families and tell them these are the rules. If you if you don't play by the rules, you're going to end up in prison. Same for Germany, same for Britain, same for France, same for Italy. All of these liberal democracies, you know, people can vote politicians out of office, but they can never, the politicians, neither the people nor the politicians can ever touch the oligarchs. And so, you know, this is the big difference. And this is why you have this absurd that you have these billionaire oligarchs meeting in Davos and they keep talking about democracy, about how democracy is in danger and how they have to defend democracy and blah, 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 all this. And you think like, wow, isn't it amazing that all these billionaires care so much about democracy? Like they themselves care, care that we, ordinary people, um, have political power. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, it isn't because the democracy that they're defending is a fake one, is the one that they can manage. It's, it's a democracy in which the people can amuse themselves with elections and throwing out their political representatives, but the whole thing is stage managed by the, by the, by the oligarchs. Whereas in Russia, this is not the case. Vladimir Putin is, is sovereign. Uh, he, is, he, 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 is, he carries the sovereignty of the people and the oligarchs are accountable to him. That is, the oligarchs are accountable to the people and he's there to police that they behave and that they do not ob abuse their economic power, which doesn't exist in the West, which is why Western oligarchies are so, so opposed to these autocratic regimes because they absolutely dread having some kind of a, pol pol a political leader who can actually curb their excesses and police them and tell them what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. With what's kind of going on, and now they're trying to get all the West to attack Russia, Russia's the bad boy. With the yes. good relations that Russia has with China, now you know, like the BRICS, but exclude the BRICS, I mean, most of the stuff that's manufactured is done by China. And if Russia has such a good relationship with China, like if they just turn off the tap from sending stuff over, the West doesn't have much to do, really, because they can't produce much of the things themselves. Um, yes, but, you know, uh, the, the people in the West who are uh, part of the ruling establishment absolutely don't care. There's going to be enough for them. We can you know, squabble over whatever is left over. They don't care. And then they also are uh, not very realistic people. You know, they, if you, <clears throat> if you pay very close attention to the way, you know, the, you can, you can read their policy papers. You can read what the World Economic Forum is discussing. They're not realistic. Uh, they're not even, they don't even come across as terribly smart. So they fantasize about, you know, I don't know, they're going to run the steel furnaces with, with wind turbines and, and solar plants. I don't know how they imagine it, but they think that, you know, like somehow technology is going to um, invent the magic. And then, you know, once they consolidate power and disable disinformation and misinformation and eliminate opposition and dissent, that then they, they'll be able to mobilize the whole society to restart the military uh, industries and to start the great 
rearmament to do another hurrah against you know uh, Russia and China to again reestablish their hegemony over the Eurasian landmass but that's you know that's not going to happen but you know they can always fantasize because they don't pay the price of this fantas of these fantasies they just um pass the cost on to the ordinary people whom they then use as cannon fodder in their wars and if it doesn't work oh well it doesn't work but you know we can always fight fight until the last man and with uh taiwan then is like there has there been updates on that what's because i mean i'm hearing so much about taiwan and china and everything is it false flag or what what, what do you think is going on uh well, I'm not sure to tell you the truth. It seems to me that they are now so enmeshed between Ukraine, um, Middle East, and the upcoming elections in the United States that I think they're just kind of keeping Taiwan on a, on a, on a slow burner in case they need another flashpoint. But I think that they're not very keen on... Um, on escalating there at the same time as well, because they are uh, they're really literally uh, getting beat to a bloody pulp in the Middle East, and you know I'll I'll just point out for the benefit of your listeners that this was already, uh, you know, the American military leadership understood this already in the early 1990s, and they they essentially wrote explicitly in these in these um, policy papers that the, the American co- control of the Middle East rested on two very important pillars. One of them was their alliances with the regional powers like Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Jordan and um, Egypt. And that without those alliances, the United States would not be able to control the region. And the second pillar of their power in the Middle East is the ability to project power, meaning to to discourage anyone from um, getting too uppity against American uh, hegemony there, just because they're afraid of challenging the, the the big empire. Well, both of those things collapsed, you know, uh, neither Saudi Arabia nor Jordan nor Egypt nor uh, uh, any other power, Iraq in the, in the region are, are reliable allies of the United States. Everybody's hedging their bets. Some nations, some former allies are now former allies. Literally, they're, they're no longer, they're, they're now <clears throat> actually adversaries like Iraq and Saudi Arabia um, with Jordan and Egypt kind of sitting on the fence but you know clearly understanding which way the winds are blowing and Egypt now join is joining the BRICS so they understand which ways the winds are blowing and you know this doesn't exist and then I think that the war in Ukraine has shown the American and Western weapon systems to be ineffective. So, you know, even the ragtag military uh, groups like um, Houthis, I, I'm not sure if it's correct, quite correct to call them ragtag, but they're clearly, 
you know, um, inferior to U.S. military. But they know that, you know, on the other side of the planet, you know, U.S. military cannot challenge them. So they're no longer afraid of challenging the U.S. military and striking, you know, launching direct missile strikes against American ships. And the United States doesn't have an effective um, answer to that challenge. So um, it's all kind of imploding, you know, it's all kind of imploding. And then it always comes back home where I think that these same oligarchies reckon we need to we need to consolidate power at home and then we will regroup and try again at some point in the future. So that's why we get fascism and and censorship and the uh, crackdown on freedom um, in the in the in the West. Excellent. I think uh, Grace wants to play a video now. Yeah. I I think um, well, Roy and I are Europeans. I think we need to stand up when our president is speaking. <laughs> These risks are serious because they limit our ability to tackle the big global challenges we are facing. Well, let me start from the beginning. It's not conflict or climate. It is disinformation and misinformation, followed closely by polarization within our societies. These risks are serious because they limit our ability to tackle the big global challenges we are facing. Changes in our climate and our geopolitical climate, shifts in our demography and in our technology, spiraling regional conflicts and intensified geopolitical competition and their impacts on supply chains. The sobering reality is that we are once again competing more intensely across countries than we have in several decades. And this makes the theme of this year's Davos meeting even more relevant, rebuilding trust. This is not a time for conflicts or polarization. This is a time to build trust. This is a time to drive global collaboration more than ever before. This requires immediate and structural responses to match the size of the global challenges. I believe it can be done. And I believe that Europe can and must take the lead in shaping that global response. The starting point for that is to look deeper at the Global Risk Report to map out a way forward. Many of the solutions lie not only in countries working together, but crucially on businesses and governments, business and democracies working together. Oh, I think that's all that we, I wanted really to share uh, the emphasis of that. Because even just for an ordinary person like me, it's just funny and crazy to hear someone of that stature of leadership of an evil 
close empire. It, you know, saying those words, it's like, as you mentioned already, it was totally a different, we say democracy, it's different for them. We say freedom is different for them. So everything, and yet they play on what we really need. So let me share more of what you thought when you first heard that. I, I found the whole thing really chilling and dismaying. It, it really, I, I grew up in communism and it really reminds me of the grandiose speeches of, you know, communist, the, the members of the, of the, of the Politburo who, you know, um, they would use grandiose verbiage and buzzwords and trying to make some kind of a good sense out of something they want to say. But it's all, it's all very disturbing. You know, to begin with, a woman who is the president of European Commission, whom nobody elected for anything, who is talking about cooperation of democracies. And I think that she mentioned that that whole speech is 20 some minutes long. I think she mentions democracy like four or five times during the speech, except that she's not, she has never been elected to anywhere. She's, she's just a, you know, equivalent of a communist apparatchik. And then he, she's speaking before a group of very wealthy powerful corporate leaders. She's not talking to the people. In fact, they cannot, people are not allowed to come anywhere near this gathering in Davos, Switzerland. So the whole thing is creepy in a very dystopian way. It's, 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 I find her speech very disturbing to watch and I find her in delivering that very highly choreographed speech, it's obviously, it's obviously been worded very, very carefully by whoever her speechwriters are. You know, there's a lot of words like um, transparency and democracy and inclusivity and innovation, like so many buzzwords, and and it's all kind of nicely shaped, but the whole, the whole taken together is just disturbing. I think it's the sign of the times. This is exactly what we're opposed to. You know, George Soros at the very place at Davos, uh, I think about two years ago, said exactly what we're up against. It's a clash of two systems of governance. And one of the systems is this Western colonial oligarchic system of government, government and the exponents of that system of governance are exactly gathered there in Davos, addressed by President of the European Commission, who is appointed uh, apparatchik, not elected. And she's talking about the future of the world and the future of humanity. And they appoint themselves trustees of the future. And uh, they need to rebuild trust because obviously nobody could trust people like this. And uh, this is this is exactly what we are opposed to, and these are, these are exactly the the groupings that are go, going to uh, foment fascism for a future world conflict. And uh, when you wrote the subtitle, "It is time to be brave," 
it's truly time to be brave because most of us really get scared because of personal situations and it's it's understandable but then for those who, who believes in in their who has a strong christian faith here's what uh, the quote that uh, alex wrote is in joshua 1 that 9 chapter 1 verse 9 have i not commanded you be strong and courageous do not be afraid do not be discouraged for the lord your god will be with you wherever you go and it doesn't even have to be a christian faith you you most of us believe on something greater than us or something in us that's truly powerful and we have to always claim that yes and i think that being courageous is a problem if for any one person if they're left alone you know it's it's difficult to be courageous if you're like martin luther king or mahatma gandhi or you know thomas sankara or somebody like that but you know today we are so connected there's you know millions of us hundreds of millions of us want the same things we can't, we want a better future we want greater liberty and prosperity and you know good standards of living and safe cities and a happy environment to raise our children in and so forth and we can have that we we live in an amazingly abundant beautiful world that is our birthright which we we, we simply have to claim it so i think that if it's if it's millions of us making even moderately courageous decisions like not complying with vaccine mandates, not complying with, you know, nonsense like masking and social distancing, not um, not buying into these into these insane demonization stories about the Russians and, and the Chinese and the Iranians and the Muslims, whatever is going around, <clears throat> then you know, we prevail. We don't need to be all heroes like Mandela or, or, or Martin Luther King. Even Just with small acts of courage. With with what you're saying there, with like say, because I've seen it with when they were doing the conscription for the Ukrainians that had been in Ireland. And I saw the letter from the revenue that were kind of saying, or the, the Irish government, whatever, it's kind of going for the corporate entity, the all capital letters of the person, not signed. So in reality, when you respond to that, that is not me, I'm the living soul, and you didn't sign it, so that doesn't justify it. I'm assuming they'll have something similar across the world, and that if you stand in your own sovereignty, you can actually prevent being drafted when they're doing this crap. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that if each one of us... Um, acts even with with moderate courage you know we can we can create so much friction to the system we can put so much friction into the system that their plans are not going to work out the only way that we lose is if we if we surrender if we acquiesce and we let them have their way with us but we have no right to do that because our children will pay the price you know, we have to understand that we are fighting for the future of our children and their children. And so I think it is, um, this is really the struggle of our lifetimes, 
that is defining the future of the world. And so, you know, uh, the fear of losing your one's job, the fear of getting fined or ending up in prison or, you know, this stuff happens, but we have to keep it under perspective. You know, it's not, it's not like everybody who does something, you know, like, and, you know, this is what I'm saying is already happening, you know, i.e. German farmers, Canadian truckers, uh, the, the, what do you call these boys who are taking down the, the ULES cameras in London? This is all already being done. I'm not saying something new. Blade Runners. The, yeah, exactly. The Blade Runners. So this is already happening, but we have to, you know, we have to kind of cultivate this um, non-compliance. We have to acknowledge it. We have to encourage it. We need to give an applause to these blade runners and to the truckers and to the farmers. Bring them coffee, bring them hot tea, bring them food, join them. Uh, things like this. And then, uh, you know, we have to formulate our own ideas about what we want in the future. Because, again, this beautiful, abundant planet literally is our birthright. We, we, don't, we are not here by the permission of the government. We don't have our liberties because the government granted it to us. We have them because we are creation of our creator, as is the whole, as is everything that we see around ourselves. So we just have to have the, you know, courage to claim it. And then to literally, I mean, I hate to use their own terminology, but we have to build back better, you know, <laughs> because... <laughs> What we had so far was crap. And so the future has to be better than this and we have to build it ourselves. And so what is that future going to be? What do we want? Do we want um, economic growth and full employment and, and, and save jobs? Or do we want meaningful, creative existence, time with our loved ones? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a... It's a blank sheet on which we can draw whatever we want. So we should, and we should think about what we want. And then we have to be, have also the courage to rediscover who we are. Because, you know, I kind of sometimes think if, if, animal, if, if, if animals in, a, in these large industrial farms spent several generations in the, in the feedlots, in the cages, do they even know, can they even conceive about what it is that they are, how they were created, who they would be if they were running around outside in, in, in the sunshine, in the free, abundant world, how their psyche would change, how they would relate to others around them in a different way. We have to not be afraid of that. I see a lot of people say like, oh, you know, we're a nasty race. If we were outside, it would just be, you know, um, how, how, did, how did Thomas Hobbes say? Nasty, brutish, and short. Our lives would be nasty, brutish, and short. No, that's the, that's the, that's the em empire propaganda. This is the imperial propaganda to keep people in their places and to keep them from, to keep them afraid of, of freedom. And we shouldn't be afraid of freedom. We should be eager and excited to, to discover who we are. And we already know from 
travelers who have visited native cultures and native tribes around the world, that they always found these native tribes and native cultures to be very, very healthy, very happy people. And I read somewhere that it's like uh, constant laughter, nonstop feast, something, something to, to that effect. So this is the future we can have. My family have... is like that in the Philippines. Sorry? My family in the Philippines is like that. Oh, there you go. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. And so I think we could all have that. And we should all fight for it because, you know, what's what, what's the alternative? The alternative is to go into Klaus Schwab, you know, dystopian matrix of, of uh, digital ideas and, and uh, perpetual vaccine mandates and constant wars. And, and yeah, you can read it all up. They, they, they pretty much lay it down and it's, it's pretty much dystopian science fiction. And this is the image that you chose that should not happen unless we acquiesce. Exactly. This is exactly what what can happen to us if we don't push back. It happened to the Ukrainian people. People have to understand that Ukrainian people are were proud, very well educated civilized European peoples. This didn't happen to them because they were stupid, because they were unsophisticated. This happened to them because they couldn't understand the schemes that were being played in their societies. But, you know, we watched it happen. We, we, have, we have an obligation to try to understand, to make sure that it doesn't happen to our children, because all of these flags... Every, every flag here represents somebody's child who died. And their parents didn't have them to end like this. And we, don't, we didn't have our children so that they could end like this under some other flag. We need to be brave. We need to fight for them. We need to fight for their future. And you wrote at the end of your article, and that's in Substack, and just Google and search, um, Alex Craner said, collectively, we could only fail if we fell for misdirection, or if we simply surrendered for fear, and that we've no right to do, for we would be surrendering also on behalf of future generations. And it's so true. So if we're on the right side of history, then the, you know, we can see a better future for the kids, for our children. But if not, then, you know, it's our responsibility. And you chose this um, quote also. Would you like to read it for us, Alex, please? Sure. So this quote is by Archibald, Archibald MacLeish, who said, Since wars begin in the minds of men, it is in the minds of men that defenses of peace must be constructed. Obviously, you know, so he was he was one of the founders of the UNESCO. And I think that this quote is in UNESCO's founding documents. And it's very true. And okay, the only thing that would change today is that we would be obliged to say men and women, but everybody understand what this means. 
you know nobody nobody has to get offended because it says men uh but this is exactly right and this is i think why we're talking and why we are discussing these things because we in our minds have to be clear about what is coming our way and we have to think about active act, active ways of um of pushing back and of uh, creating our own future uh, that we ourselves uh, choose and formulate and desire rather than just passively acquiescing what somebody else has um, <clears throat> in mind for us. And Alex, would you like to please invite your audience? Yes, you know, you. Uh, thank you, uh, Grace. Uh, I am easy to find on X on Twitter. My handle is at Naked Hedgy. And I have a substack, www.alexcraner.substack.com, or the, the title of my substack is Alex Craner's Trend Compass. And then for people who, uh, who trade, who manage their investment portfolios, I have a professional website that's called iSystem Trend, Com um, sorry, iSystem Trend Following. So that's also not easy, not difficult to find. And and to all our viewers, please remember to um, like, <sighs> subscribe, donate when you can, and share. Also, okay, you, um, Roy Colan and I, Grace Asagra, we're easy to find. Also, you put our name, you could follow us in a lot of video platforms, as well as the audio platforms. So and it will all be in the uh, BitChute, Rumble, Brighton, we try big platforms to upload it small platforms. And we appreciate those who share it in their sub stacks as well. And in their telegram group, you know, we just get excited that we're not just you know talking on our own but it's also being shared and for those who are also looking for wellness resources i do have some links that i could share with you and i am a holistic registered nurse and i've been health coaching way before the pandemic happened so that's why i did buy the narrative and thank you alex thank you thank you thank you Thank you. Thank you, Grace. Thanks, Roy. Uh, it was it was a pleasure as always. And I look forward to joining you again in the near future. Thanks. For and me. take care. Bye. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye.